I think you need to understand that sustainability is not enough. It's not enough. And it's so visceral in understanding that sustainability is not enough is imagine that you had a, an amazing dinner tonight in a great vegetarian, no waste place. And you're coming out of that place. And as you're walking out, you bump face to face with a person with whom you used to see each other very often and relatively close, but you haven't seen each other for a couple of years. So you hug, you're like, oh, how's everything? So glad to see you. Long time, no see, time to catch up. How's your life? How's your work? How's your marriage? Sustainable? Sustainable is not enough. We don't want our marriages to be just sustainable. I hope you don't. (laughs) Your partnerships, your businesses, your relationship of any kind. I don't want my marriage to be just sustainable. Not, Not enough. And I also don't want my business to be just sustainable. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, If others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you. Hear their struggles. And then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. Nadia and I mostly talk about business and sustainability. She describes what she saw in the dissolution of where she was born, Kazakhstan, where she saw the opposite of sustainability. And I can't describe what she saw, but you will hear the craziness of the collusion, the economic collapse, the political collapse, and all these things that she saw, and leads her to see that business works best when it's sustainable. And I think that's a lot of what drives her to making business more sustainable. And I agree. Although when I look at the world or look at the markets in the United States, we have these incredible subsidies for fossil fuels, paying for military to maintain supply lines that everyone pays for, roads that I agree that I benefit from, but I don't use nearly as much as others because I don't have a car. And yet I pay for the same amount of taxes for them. There's huge farm subsidies for meat and things to sustain meat, as well as the waste that comes from it. All these things that distort a market so that things, businesses that are not sustainable can appear sustainable. So companies that pollute, but that the public pays to clean up, what I'm getting at is that we have a lot of cases where we do not accurately account for the costs. So businesses can continue making money, even though they're not sustainable. So I support rectifying this inaccurate accounting by taxing the pollution that we all pay for and extraction as well as a matter of accurate accounting, which I consider accurate accounting is a prerequisite for capitalism. I cannot believe people who support capitalism aren't clamoring for these taxes while relieving taxes in other areas. I'm not saying more taxes. I'm saying accurate accounting. Anyway, Nadia loves business as she describes it, the fastest way for value creation. And she cares about environmental sustainability. So we talk about this sort of thing, accurately, mutually, beneficially creating value through business. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Nadia Jekshanbayeva. How are you doing? Very good. And you did very well. Thank you for practicing with my name. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's... Uh, <laughs> thank you. And uh, how would you say it? Jekshanbayeva. That sounds much better. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a his- 
kind of a name with a history and it's a very regional name. I'm from Kazakhstan. So it tells a lot to the local person. I'm very curious to hear, because when we spoke before, you talked about your history with, with uh, growing up there and coming over here and how that's affected you and your career and, and how you, what you do. And partly I want to hear that. Partly there's something else that when I look at you and your presence, there's, I see two of you. I think it's not really two, but I think it looks like it because there's a practical side that works with Coca-Cola and it works with IBM and it's a chief reinvention officer. And that part seems very practical, very business oriented. And I bet it helps a lot of people and businesses do very well. And then I look at the books that you write and the books seem very green, very sustainability oriented. And now I don't think there's two separate use, but the books seem different and some of the stuff you've written, I think I was reading on Harvard Business Review you wrote, or was it, oh, uh, Stanford. Stanford. And you were saying some things that you were disillusioned with some of the green things. I think you thought about the green things more than, or sustainability, or that more than the average person. So I give to you three things to talk about. The, the practical you, the more eco-minded you, and the you of growing up and becoming who you are. Take your pick <laughs> of where you want to go first. I want to start with the practical versus eco-minded because I think this is such an illusion that is prevalent not only in the mind of a person who reads my bio, but aside from my life, it's very much as prevalent in the eyes and the mind of a typical business person and a typical company uh, customer. So whether you're an employee inside the company, whether you're a government official, whether you're a customer, there's this illusion of trade-off. Either we have good business, good product, a good solution, or we have something sustainable. And this is a dichotomy. This is the trade-off, either one mm. or another, but you cannot have both. And I'm surprised that even after decades now we are in decades of quite a lot of people like me who work in this field, helping companies find the win-win. We're still nowhere close to spreading the gospel of win-win because the easiest way I learned how to explain it is very similar to what journey our business community went through uh, when dealing with quality. So if you remember 60s and 70s and the car industry, at that point, mm -hmm. there was a trade-off illusion that either you can have a high-quality car, you can have a cheap car, but you cannot have both. So if you want to have an affordable car, it will be bad quality. But if you want to have a high-quality car, it will be expensive. And the automotive community lived in this illusion for many decades. That's all of their assumptions of their decisions were made in that way until Toyota comes along and shows a way forward that actually says the more you invest in quality in a right way through Kaizen, through Lean, through Six Sigma, through continuous improvement, the cheaper you actually will make your car. So the investment in quality for you is actually the fastest way towards cost efficiency and towards effectiveness overall. And I think we are going through the same field with sustainability. We were in an illusion, let's say 30, 40 years ago. We're waking up to the reality that it's not a trade-off, it's actually both and win-win. And for many companies today, it's a huge competitive advantage. So I don't see it as a two sides of a story. I also don't see uh, sustainability as 
fundamentally like an enemy to the business profit. It's the other way around. You cannot be profitable if you're not sustainable. Also, there cannot be nothing good for the environment if there is no profitability. There will be there will be absolutely now no benefit if all companies the second die, die off. We just go bankrupt. That won't solve many problems as well. You know, speaking of the auto industry in the 60s and 70s, you know, in the US, the, the big three at the time dominated, you know, I mean, they dominated the world, but they dominated certainly the American car scene. Mm -hmm. And I have some, okay, Unsafe at Any Speed, the book by Ralph Nader. Did you read, I don't know, I haven't read it, but I, I know the effect of it. I haven't read it. And it seems to me they were told, like in their face, these are the problems. These cars, I mean, you talked about uh, price versus quality, but there's also reliability. Mm -hmm. and, or I guess part of quality might be reliability and safety. And it was right there in their faces. Someone was saying, these are problems. And they fought it mm -hmm. instead of embracing it. Mm -hmm. I mean, they tried to discredit him and all these sorts of things. And it backfired because he ended up being, I think it was named like the most trusted man in America or something like that. And it wasn't long before GM declared bankruptcy. It was a long time, but eventually GM declared bankruptcy, as did Chrysler. And it was right there. Mm -hmm. I mean, they could have taken that as an instruction book or a direction. And it feels like all the science is saying, like, we have these, the equivalent of unsafe at any speed here today. Do we want to fall? Do we want the same thing to happen again? Do we want all our big companies that are polluting to declare bankruptcy in a little while as other ones from outside don't fall prey to, well, what got, how did they reinvent? How can they take these wake-up calls to, because, you know, leadership in the environment. I hope that big-time leaders are listening to this is that reinvention seems like the, the order of the day. <laughs> Yeah. You seem the expert. <laughs> well, um, this was the evolution of my thinking. So I didn't enter the field of sustainability because I was any kind of professional in sustainability. My doctorate is in organizational behavior. I specialized on large system change. What do I know about sustainability? Only my own history, right? So I grew up in the Soviet Union. And if you want to learn what sustainability looks or doesn't look like, live through a collapse of a country that happens out of the blue. Just live through it and you will see and feel in your gut everything you need to know what true sustainability looks like in every way. Environmental, social, mental, spiritual, physical, financial, any aspect of sustainability. We saw the disintegration of our country in a matter of a couple of months and there was no referendum that you see right now in Brexit. There was no discussion. There, nobody asked us. It was three people out of 15 presidents of 15 republics. So imagine that you have right here in this country, 50 states. So imagine that three governors of those states got together, got drunk and signed dissolution of the United States. That's physically, historically what happened. There are evidence that show that their assistants were trying to stop them at the time. We had people in the air trying to fly in and stop them at the time. They just signed the document without much thinking of what does it mean for millions and millions of people who lived in that country. And I am not a big proponent of Soviet Union. Uh, my family comes from a family of long history of dissidents. Almost everyone in my family, great-grandparent generation was executed. Very few survived. They were again jailed. Very few survived. So I'm not a proponent of Soviet Union. But if you want to change you probably need to put a second of thought into it and see uh -huh. how you're going to move forward and what does it mean for a country that was artificially designed to be pushed together all the time. So, for example, 
in the Soviet Union without any uh, economic reason, the production of most products was divided into parts. So if we were to produce a car, one part would be produced in one republic and another part would be produced in another republic only to keep people occupied because it was illegal not to be employed in the Soviet Union. So if you are not employed, you can go to jail. It's illegal not to be employed. So government had to guarantee jobs for every single person. And that way they divided the production of every product between republics. So at the moment of collapse, our republic, Kazakhstan, was left with its wheels and another republic was left with an engine and another republic was left with the assembly line, but no parts. And there was absolutely no integration between them. So we had huge number of factories uh, closing in a matter of few months and huge suicide rates spike, huge deregulation. So every kind of pollution you can imagine, because we had suddenly no government and no oversight of any kind. So when I entered sustainability field, I didn't come from a field of a hard science in terms of biology, physics, um, or anything of that kind. I come from social sciences. I am a person who I was studying at the time, how do we keep large systems, whether it's societies, communities, um, big companies, how do we keep them alive? Not intact, because as you know from nature, the only thing intact in nature, the only thing that has this very stable line is a thing that is dead. So stability in nature and the longest and most sustainable system on planet Earth is the planet Earth. And stability in nature is death. So we're not talking about keeping something intact. It's keeping something alive. That is a very whole different story. So I entered from that perspective and it was a complete accident because I was a PhD student and I went to a most amazing business school at Case Western Reserve in Cleveland. And the practice of that business school, of that department, was always being on the ground with the actual company. So I ended up doing consulting very early on as a part of a team. And our one of our very first projects was Green Mountain Coffee Roasters, which at that point was not yet a publicly traded company and did not have a Kuruk and plastic and all of that. It was one of the few companies in the world that had double certified coffee, organic and fair trade, and it was struggling. So our job was not to fix the environmental part. It was to fix the business part, to fix uh, long-term thinking around it. So when I started thinking and working in the business, I realized that most of the problems we face with sustainability has nothing to do with sustainability. It has everything to do with the mindset. And that's where reinvention came about. Reinvention is a mindset, is a different attitude towards change. And here we cannot blame ourselves, our, our businesses too much. It just historical, uh, it just happened this way. It's, it's just our time in the era of history. Because if you look at the last 200 years of modern culture and mindset, modern culture and mindset was always about stability. And it was all about predictability. We had very long life cycles of companies and organizations. And for those long life cycles, we created systems like an education system. So if you think you went to school here in the US, I assume. Yeah. Right? Your first grade of school. And I went to school in Soviet Union and Kazakhstan. What was the thing you learned on the first day of school? That is exact same that I learned on the first day of school. So completely different ideologies, different systems, different everything, different financial access or resources for those schools. But you and me learn exact same thing. What is that thing? 
On the first day of school? Yes, first day of school. Very and first day of school. There's one memory I have that I believe was my first day of school. And yeah. then there's how I look back at it now. I'm going to give the how I look back at it now. I think the first thing I learned was to do what I was told. Because I feel Absolutely. like ed- education is about compliance. Although I think, I think my first day of school, I had a little squirt gun that I played with before school. And I think I remember the teacher being no guns allowed. And I was like, it's a squirt gun. And anyway, so they, they gave it back to my mom and I couldn't play with my squirt gun. Well, pretty much it, right? Compliance and doing what you told in the simplest terms is sit down and shut up. Yeah. That's what you learned. And that's what I learned, even though we come from two very politi- different political systems. <laughs> I was in a socialist society and you were in a capitalist. Uh, we were atheists. Atheist? How do you say that? No religion allowed. It was a non-religious, completely not allowed, prohibited society. Uh, There's a freedom of religion in this country. I mean, any kind of belief system was different, but we learned exact same thing because we live in the world. And at that point, all of public education system around the world were all doing the same thing. They were preparing a child for a very stable world of a very long cycles. So everything we've developed in management and in education is all about sit down, shut up, because we didn't need to think. Uh, a typical child, my daughter is 15, so a typical child at five, six, or seven, before they start school, try to get them to sit 40 minutes, try to make them shut up. They are natural born reinventors. They create ideas all the time. But... The moment they enter school, we kill it. We uneducate them. We Mm -hmm. teach them not to reinvent. So naturally, when they hit university and then they go to work, they stop allowing themselves looking at, they stop from allowing themselves to look at change as something positive, as something good, because for 20 years, they've been taught that change is bad and shut down and sit up. It's not that they stop it. It's that they've never started it or it's been squashed. It wins sc- squash. So uh, I would assume a typical child reinvents hundreds of times a day. If you remember your young, young years, you were learning how to walk. You were learning how to play. You reinvented yourself all the time. And then suddenly that innate ability is completely killed. So what we bumped against as we worked with many companies on sustainability and other challenges is that people were so uneducated or uh, they were so taught to forget reinvention. Yeah, what's the word? Inhibited. That the moment any change showed up, it became very scary for them. So it was about recovering their natural reinvention skills. And then it's much easier to introduce any change. And it became not a, it's no brainer. That tells me, I have this picture of you working with these big blue chip companies and so forth here at IBM. And I bet they're having more fun with you than they generally have. They're like, oh, this is what it was like. Is that what it's, is it fun to work with you? It depends. It depends. Uh, so I have a, again, here is probably your introduction is very true. I have uh, many different faces and I'm very no nonsense, very high standards person. So from time to time, it's very hard to talk to me and very hard to be with me. I remember there was a CEO of one company and I cannot name them because it's a non-disclosure, but it's a very large traditional manufacturing company. And I work with them for many years and support them for many years. And I remember very clearly where the CEO was nearly raising his voice saying, do you understand how hard it is to have a conversation with you? You put the plank so high that we lose hope of ever reaching it. So we just dis- 
this is just demotivating. Stop it. So yes, it's fun at times, but also I think fun should be disciplined uh, in a good way. Discipline in a way of you have to give it immense amount of effort and you have to organize the same way you organize anything else. So for example, I come from a school of strengths-based leadership and strengths-based change, which means when we're looking at change, we try to start with things that work. For example, a manufacturing company has a problem with productivity. So maybe their yield is lower than their average KPI. So maybe their yield out of 100% possible capacity, they want to be at 85 and right now is 70. So traditionally, what normal business does is sits down for a big meeting where everyone screams and blames each other for why is the productivity so low. What we do is we sit down and we explore every moment in the last three months where productivity was above average. And we want to understand Uh what happened. Why was it so high? What happened on that day that it was outside of the norm? And imagine those conversations are very positive because everyone wants to show what did they do, what their department, procurement or operations or quality control or whatever else, what did they do for the productivity to be so high that one day? But you have to approach this analysis with the same discipline as you approach the analysis of things that don't work. But for some reason, when things don't work, we go very, very deep. When things work, you're like, ah, good job and move on. Mm-hmm. And that starts again at school. Um, when was the last time or when was the last time in your life when you had a long discussion on why somebody did something good at school? My, when my daughter has a good grade, there's no discussion. The discussion only starts when she's failing. So we have to have the same discipline and same systematic approach when we analyze something good and we do something fun is when we are, you know, looking at the bad not working, non-performing moments. You sound, is Edward Zeming big for you? I mean, you start I don't know talking about Christ. Oh, I really like him because he's a physicist who went into business. And so like one of my role models and he worked in the car industry here, but then uh, they didn't really recognize him. And he ended up going to Japan and was a major figure, as I understand, of Japan's auto industry post-World War II. And he was very much into control, not control, like telling people what to do, but control of like seeing the ups and downs and how, when you're at, if a system was in control or out of control. And a lot of people look at him and think it's all about numbers, but the knowing the numbers part was to transcend the, if you don't know the numbers, you, you don't know what you're talking about, but if you get hung up on the numbers, you look in the wrong place too. They're important, but ultimately it's, he was very clear. The most important things are not measurable. But if you don't measure things, then you can't get to the, the immeasurables. And he was really, to the uninitiated, he, he looks like he's about numbers. It's the same thing. There's a guy, actually, I'm going to talk to him later today, who he has a podcast, uh, sorry, a blog called uh, Do the Math. So he's a Caltech trained physicist, works at uh, UC San Diego. And he does the math on, like, can we put a big satellite into space that collects big solar, with a big solar array that just sends a, an energy beam down to the earth? And he's like, if you do the math, it doesn't work. What if we use biofuels? If you do the math, it doesn't work. Like most of these things, it sounds nice, but, but then doing the math is so you can figure out what's important, what's not important. And then you get onto what's important. So you, the viewers, uh, sorry, the listeners can't see that you're nodding. Yes, yes, yes. And so. Uh, very much so. So I need to check out the references you just named. I truly, truly believe, and I'm specifically talking about business, um, but I truly believe that unless you 
one, love business, love it. And without excuses, love it. And oh, wait, two- Sorry to interrupt. So define business then, because is business about quarterly profits? Is business, what's business? That you, so what do you love? Business for me is a particular form of human activity. So we have different forms of activity. If you think about the history of management as a profession, I was surprised to learn that the word profession came around uh, at about the same time that legal profession, medical profession, and management as a profession emerged as a opposite to craftsmen. So huge perception of the huge percentage of the world at that point were either in agriculture or in craft. And as a separate social strata came professionals, which was three professions, law, um, medicine, and management, bankers at most, um, I would assume at that point. And the profession has a fundamental value and Justice is the fundamental value of law as a profession. I won't debate whether it's always delivered or not and Mm -hmm. whether it's lived up to or not. For medicine, I hope health is the ultimate value of what's created. I think business is fundamentally is about rapid value creation. So for me, what business is about is creating value. And if the value you create is greater than another value on the market, you will have financial success. But financial success is not equal value. We have right now in the world, if you do the math and actually calculate all amount of outstanding debt that exists at this point, we don't have enough value to cover the amount of cash or money, this very virtual instrument that is supposed to uh, exist in the world. We simply don't have enough resources to have a balancing act between all the cash that we assume we have and all of the value that still exists on planet Earth. So generally speaking for me. So business is about creating value. Yes. So when you say you love, when you say if you love business, it means you love creating value. Yes. So you have to love the idea that business at this point is the best most effective and efficient machine for rapid value creation. And we've tried other machines. Government creates value as well. Education as a system creates value. Healthcare, nonprofit, the whole nonprofit sector creates value. International organizations, media, all of them create value, but nobody does it as fast, as efficiently, as interconnectedly. Uh, business right now is a global community is the most interconnected community in the world. And it's fundamental about trust, right? You cannot trade value between each other if you don't trust each other. So it's also a community that creates a lot of trust. I have a dear friend who at the time I did my PhD was studying uh, peacekeeping in Rwanda because it was still, I started my PhD in 2001. So Rwanda genocide was very, very raw still. It was just about five, six years after it finished. So she was looking at how certain businesses create peacekeeping by connecting the wives of the murderers with the wives of the victims into business enterprises. Because you cannot have a business enterprise without trust. And that trust is deeper than any other kind of forms of trust, which is, I thought was a beautiful, beautiful innovation. But Number one, you have to love business. If you Mm -hmm. want to be successful in sustainability or any other change and reinvention, you have to love business. You have to love value creation. And number two, you have to understand finance because finance is a blood system for business. It's not that I wake up every morning and I say, the purpose of my life is to have the best blood and the most amount of blood. That would be absurd. So the same in business. You cannot wake up every moment and say, 
the job of my company is to produce the most amount of finance, you know, most amount of cash and maximize it. What are you going to do with it? If there is no other side, because cash finance is a means of exchange. It on its own has no value unless there's something to exchange. And unfortunately, currently, we don't have that connection in the financial system. So we have more means of exchange created than the actual value that can be exchanged. So we have a lot of inflation because of that. The cash devalues very quickly because there is nothing to exchange with that cash. And again, how do I know that? Because I lived through thousands and thousands percents of inflation the way Venezuela is going right now. We had the same in the 1992, 93 when um, the country collapsed and we didn't have our own currency between 91 and 93. So we used somebody else's currency, Russia, and it was devaluating every second. So my parents had an apartment, enough money to buy an apartment one day and, and the same money could buy them some eggs a couple of days later. So, so people would get money and they would run to the store? They would run to anywhere they could, but at a certain point, nobody would accept anything anymore. So you just sit and wait and you go back to the natural trade. Natural trade. A lot of barter was happening. A lot. Uh, we had a lot of trade and the whole government uh, was supporting a lot of natural trade because what else can you do? So I'm still, so to work on the environment, love business, understand finance. Yes. There's a third. Um, I don't know if there was a third, but there's two are absolutely required. So I assume most people who want to work in the field of sustainability, um, ah, there is a third. So most people who want to work in the field of sustainability understand sustainability enough. It's not that, that is not their uh, blind spot. Perhaps the blind spot is business side and the finance side, which are two very different things. Finance is just a flow flow of resources. It's the same thing. What is finance like blood? So imagine that your fingers don't get enough blood. They will start disintegrating. You will actually have to amputate your fingers uh, because there's not enough supply of blood. Same with business. If there's a department in your business that doesn't have enough budgets, there's no supply of fresh blood, that department will stop producing value and it will disintegrate. But these are two separate things. Uh, They have to be understood in relationship to each other, but they are not the same. And the third thing, I think you need to understand that sustainability is not enough. It's not enough. So the fastest way I get this, this is not my joke. I don't even know where I got this joke, but I love this joke because it's so clear and it's so visceral in understanding that sustainability is not enough, is imagine that you had a, an amazing dinner tonight, right? Out, somewhere out in a great vegetarian, no waste place. And you had a great dinner and you're coming out of that. That would place. be my kitchen. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, maybe there is something coming up in New York City that is similar, but you had an out. You had maybe a dinner friend's out, kitchen. Maybe friend's kitchen. And you left the apartment. And as you're walking out, you bump face to face with a person with whom you used to see each other very often and relatively close, but you haven't seen each other for a couple of years. So you hug, you're like, oh, how's everything? So glad to see you. Long time, no see, time to catch up. How's your life? How's your work? How's your marriage? Sustainable. (laughs) Right? So you have a physical reaction to the fact that sustainable is not enough. Mm-hmm. We don't want our marriages to be just sustainable. I hope you don't. <laughs> your partnerships, your businesses, your 
relationship of any kind. I don't want my marriage to be just sustainable. Not, not enough. And I also don't want my business to be just sustainable. I don't want it to, uh, you know, suffer in that space because there's a lot of suffering associated with it. I want it to be amazing, flourishing, thriving, uh, generative. I don't know what words to use, but I want it to be more than just sustainable. So I think you need to understand that it's not enough and that the word itself has in innate limitation in it that when you come to business and you say, come to sustainability meeting, most people don't feel like this is something inspiring, that it's something that gives them this rush of energy that they want to run to that meeting. I actually, uh, whenever I teach sustainability in executive education, I start all classes with two questions. Number one, uh, you know, if I invite you, you know, what sustainability is for you? What does it mean? And they give a lot of answers. But number two, more honest question. If I invite you to a sustainability meeting in your company, how many of you really like to go? And the percentage of hands that go up is always less than 10%. Wow. Always. Because the word itself and what we've done with that word is just not, as you say, delicious. <laughs> There's nothing deliciousness in it. There is no, you don't want to you know, snack on it. You don't want to have a sit down meeting and snack on sustainability. It's something that feels more like getting a vaccine. I have to do it, but it's not exactly in top of my enjoyment list, right? So we need to find a way to change this perception and reinvention has been our answer. Did you see the movie, The Matrix? Yes, of course. How can you not? Everyone always talks about the red pill and the blue pill, but not that scene. There's a scene where they eat the gruel. It's like Oatmeal looking stuff. Yes, disgusting looking thing. That's sustainable. That food is sustainable food. It's like yeah. it will sustain you. And actually, the bad guy, uh, what's his name? The one who betrayed everyone, or the yeah. robot. The the one who betrayed. Yeah, not Agent Smith. The the one who betrayed them. Uh, uh -huh. I forget his I name. I didn't remember his name, but I know the one who betrayed them and killed. Do you remember one of the scene friends? when he decides to betray them? What he's doing? Oh, he was eating. Was he was eating in a restaurant? Yes. He's eating that steak. And he's like, that's, he's like, this is so good. I know it's not real, but I love it. And that's the last, it's merely sustainable, at least for him, merely sustainable was not enough. And so he went for the physical pleasure. But you see, merely sustainable was not enough for the rest of them either. The thing that was feeding Neil yeah, you're right. yeah. was the belief, right? So uh, we know that from from Viktor Frankl, from his diaries of surviving in a concentration camp, what saved people, people who survived the greatest percentage was not the ones that were close to kitchen and had more food. It's the ones who had something to believe in that had a sense of meaning. And I think that's the true story for businesses as well. Businesses that survive today are the ones that have the greater sense of meaning that they then package into a particular form of value. So you can have endless amount of things you can package, but the meaning is what drives you and it needs to be greater than just sustain. To just sustain feels like we're just suffering here on planet earth. And I don't think that's what we're created for. And that's not the, at least that's not the life I want to live. Mm. I want to live an exciting, meaningful life. And every time you work with a company and you discover some opportunity. Sometimes it's very small. So I keep thinking about the place where Walmart started. So in 2005, then CEO of Walmart decided that they will put ambitious sustainability goals. At that point, really ambitious sustainability goals like zero waste. In a very short horizon, they were planning to do that. And I remember one of the very first wins in that story 
was a reduction in the package in one toy tea set. So if you look at the box of the original toy tea set and the new box, which they then they branded right-sizing, that was their term. So right-sized box was about an inch, one inch uh, smaller than the original tea set. And on this one inch change in one year, they saved tons of water, huge amount of plastic and paper out of landfill, huge fuel efficiency in CO2 because they packed less of these toy sets into containers, oh, more of these toy sets into container because there were more room in the container, and transportation cost savings were three and a half million on this one inch. So when you find that step into sustainability, because that's an entrance, because without an entrance that everyone can be excited about and say, look, this was so obvious and relatively easy. And imagine how many more inches we can find all around us. That was like unleashing a tsunami of innovation and tsunami of new ideas. And it doesn't need to always start with something big. Uh, It can start with something small. There's a change of belief. Yeah. I think the inch was, or even the cost savings is secondary to the change in belief. It was a mechanism of how belief was Uh, changed, right? They needed to see the evidence that the win-win was possible, that we could simultaneously do something remarkably good for the environment and society and remarkably good for the bottom line. And the moment they saw it in such an obvious, nearly stupid example, uh, and it's just, it literally one inch, the box was just too big. It was unnecessarily big Mm -hmm. by one inch. And that one thing, changed the reality for so many managers inside the company because they had a physical evidence that win-win is not only possible, but is generally speaking very easy. You just need to start looking at things slightly differently and start this eye glasses of sustainability, this lens you put on, this pink lens gives you a different angle and you start noticing things you probably didn't notice. But generally speaking, it's not rocket science. It's relatively Decent, manageable tasks. When you say win-win, it, I can't help but think of, I don't know if you've read Anand Giridharadas' book, another last name that I practiced. And uh, it's called Winner Take All. And it's about how there's a lot of people who, like, after you read that book, you won't look at the word win, the phrase win-win the same, because there's a lot of people who are using this terminology and they're not, they're not seeking systemic change. Mm-hmm. And they're actually often reinforcing a system that, in his case, what he's looking at is not environmental, but it's the distribution of wealth and, and power. And that a lot of times people sound like they're doing things to uh, improve the situation, you know, to, I guess in his case, it would be to, to decrease inequities between the mm-hmm. haves and the have-nots, but they're actually increasing it. Mm-hmm. I, I, that doesn't apply here, I don't think. I, well, I'd have to think about it more. But to me, the big thing is that it's that they're living, they had a value and they, they achieved their value. And that feels really good. That's very rewarding. It's one of the most rewarding things is to say, like, Especially when you think something's impossible and then you do it, you know, oh, it's possible. That That's learning. That's growing. Well, when I say win-win, what I mean is uh, none of the requirements are negotiable. Both have to be met. So you have to hit the win on both financial requirement and business and requirement and social environmental requirement. So unless you do that, you are just trading value. 
you're not creating it. You're just putting value from one place, one pocket. Sometimes it's a pocket of stakeholders and you're just taking value from the pocket of stakeholders, whether it's a local community uh, that will then suffer from a bad environment, whether it's your customers, whether it's some who will be poisoned by your product or somebody else, but you're taking value from the pocket of your stakeholders and putting it in the pocket of shareholders, or in the case of many philanthropic efforts and so on, you just taking money out of the pocket of shareholders and putting it in the pocket of stakeholders, but no new value was created, just value transfer. Unless you hit win-win, now plus-plus, call it whatever, but unless you're creating positive value for both, you're not really creating value, you're just transferring it. So when we came up with the concept of embedded sustainability, which was maybe 2007, 2008, because the book came out much later, we were writing it maybe 2008, 2009. When we came out with that and said, by embedding sustainability, and I'm hitting my microphone, sorry. <laughs> by, I'm getting excited and I'm doing a lot of gestures. So by embedding sustainability into your very DNA, rather than putting it as a bolt-on sidekick to your current business, you're actually creating conditions in which your manager doesn't need to choose between being a good person and being a good businessman or businesswoman. There's some challenges I'm struggling with. That uh, Say you're a candy company. All you do is you yes. sell candy. Mm-hmm. And if you make it more efficient, so you increase your profits and you have less packaging, say, and now you're selling more candy in a nation that's 70, well, more than 70% overweight and obese. Well, let, let's make it more clear. Say you're selling heroin yeah, and you, and you, you know, you save your inch on your packaging and now you can sell more heroin, you know, not legal. It's I'll make it easier for you. So I worked with tobacco companies and uh-huh. I even worked with military companies who, by the way, are trying to make their missiles more sustainable and use less uh, materials and less waste. Well, that's something you don't hear every day. <laughs> oh, yes, they do. So the first time I got a huge request from a missile production company, I was a bit shocked by that request. For me, the starting point is not the product they produce now. So a candy company or a tobacco company or a missile company don't produce candy, tobacco, or missiles. They are the best possible value package at this point, but it doesn't need to stay that way. So when you sell candy, what do you sell? For most people, you you sell a moment of joy. You sell a moment of you know, treating yourself, yeah, giving yourself a little bit of a boost. When you sell uh, tobacco, um, for some people, that's a relaxation. You're selling relaxation. For some people, that's community because a lot of people actually continue to smoke because the smokers get together on a roof and talk Mm -hmm. about important things. So if I don't smoke, I cannot go and talk to my friends or to my colleagues somewhere on the roof. So you you really need to understand in that case, the customer, whether they want community or they want relaxation. Same with heroin. You are selling a, a opportunity to disconnect or to be a in, um, in a different release of some sort. And when you're selling missiles, um, in the best place, you're selling peace and security. I, I hope mm-hmm. most people actually started developing those for those reasons. So then the question from the reinvention point of view is how can I deliver that value without the many, many minuses of the current product? How can I create a moment of joy? Because I met with Coca-Cola and I, since then I've looked back at their slogans, you know, Coke has life, have a Coke and a smile, the pause that refreshes. None of that is connected to a material thing. No. And It's a moment of joy. Yeah. That's all. And I see ways for them to move, to disconnect, from, like to sell what they're selling, that, the value, 
without the tooth decay and, or, you know, the environmental, you know, they're the number one producer apparently of, of plastic, I think of, of the number one of something. Well, that is the challenge that they're facing. And I used to work with Coca-Cola a long time ago. I was a Coca-Cola chaired professor of sustainable development, which gave me so much grief in conversations with journalists because they kept saying, isn't that an oxymoron? How can you put Coca-Cola and sustainable development in the same title, which was a long conversation. The truth is I'm here. I have no reasons and no intention to apologize for the fact that our business today globally is where it is because it is where it is because we collectively design it to be so. So every time there is a, somebody with a righteous hand who is waving their wand and saying, this is not sustainable, the same person is usually the customer who wants that company to produce the cheapest product and will not buy if it's not cheapest. It's the same person who has a pension fund, a 401k fund, or something else who wants that fund to have a particular return and maximize the return for him or her, the shareholder in this case. So this is a collective reality out of which we need to collectively in a very responsible fashion, exit. And that responsible fashion doesn't mean closing the business. It means giving the business an opportunity to get out and being, um, I don't want to say patient because there are cases where companies are just outside, just outright wrong and they, they should be taken to court and so on. But in many cases, there is no easy exit. You need to experiment. You need a room to figure out how you're going to exit plastic if we found ourselves in plastic or how you're going to exit tobacco when we finally figured out that it's really not a good product. I had this idea with, uh, with take a fossil fuel company, Exxon, mm-hmm. but it could be any of them. I had this idea to start a division that takes all the advice from, now say this, I think most people agree we, fossil fuels have some, serve some purpose. Yes. And so Exxon would take the advice and make a division mm-hmm. like Exxon Green or something like that. And they'll take all the advice. So it'll be as sustainable as possible, accepting that you have to do something to get right. And, but they'll sell it in the same Exxon, say it's just gasoline for your car. They'll sell it in the same place, but it's, it's totally independently verified so that they're, they're sustainable. The, the land will be able to return back to after they finish pumping and so forth. And so one will be the cheapest possible and one will be the sustainable one. And they can now say to the world, buy which one you think is appropriate. And we're going to put all the accounting out there for everyone to see. We're not going to, we're going to be completely transparent with this other one. And now the market will decide if the market buys the sustainable one that, you know, it's like Greenpeace certified, or I don't know if Greenpeace would get involved with them, but you know, they'll get someone to certify it. And the accountants will say, this is all fair. And there'll be, you know, some margin that's increased also to encourage, I don't know, you know, and and now it'll be on the consumers. And there's no doubt in my mind. Actually, no, there is doubt in my mind. My gut tells me that people will kill, still go for the cheapest. But that would totally let Exxon off the hook. I mean, if, as a PR move for them, I don't know how long it takes to start up a whole new division. But they could now say, look, we're doing it. This is the way to do it. If, if you agree that fossil fuels have some purpose, we're giving it to you the way that everyone will value it. Now, this is more a thought experiment because I don't know the practicality of it. Well, I'm sure there are companies who are doing just that. The question is, for me, a challenging question is, can you produce a product that is as good and as competitive in all major categories? So whether it's competing on quality, then it's a high quality. Whether it's competing on price, then it's the same price. And 
have a sustainability as competitive advantage, then customers have no doubts that of course they will buy this as an X, as a plus one, as a one more thing that their product has. And when we put that kind of challenge on the product designers, they actually come up with amazing stuff. So we had an experiment once for product design school, school of art that is specifically focusing on industrial design. And we run two subsequent sequential challenges. One, the same designers designed the best backpack you can imagine, and they produced their designs. And the second one designed the best backpack you can imagine with the least number of parts, because when you cut out a part, the waste is generated. So the least number of parts means that there's less waste generated. And we tried it with many different limitations. And always the second round was much more interesting, much more innovating, much more appealing for the customer. Oh yeah, constraints breed creativity, yeah. Yeah, so that's what we can do is we just need to be creative with combination of constraints. And my strong belief, and that's why we wrote so many books and um, developed so many tools, is that when you put together as an equal requirement, the financial requirement, and environmental requirement, you have an amazing solution. So don't let your designers off the hook. They will surprise you every time, every time. And from the point of view of non-designers in business, business is very simple. It's not easy, but it's exceptionally simple because it's binary. And as anything binary, you can take any decision in business and put it in the numbers of, you know, in a version of zeros and ones. And in the case of business, that's pluses and minuses. Every single decision has a net plus financially and net minus. And at the end, hopefully, it's a plus. So business is very binary. If you have a sustainability solution that at the end, the net is positive, of course, they will say yes. It's very easy to convince business to do anything if the net is plus, even if it's in the process, a lot of pluses and minuses. And if it's at the end, if the math, if you do the math and the end is minus, it will not go in that direction for very simple reason. It's called fiduciary responsibility, and they will be taken to court by their stakeholders, their shareholders. There's another angle that I think is uh and to me, falls within the realm of finance or accounting that there's a lot of businesses that say because of our tax code or government regulations of, okay, there's a lot of people who eat a lot of meat that's subsidized by me as a taxpayer. And so there's a lot of people who are getting huge benefits, a lot of industries that are getting huge benefits. You know, I'm paying for maintaining an oil pipeline that I use significantly less than other people. And meanwhile, my vegetables aren't subsidized nearly like the others. And so- that seems to me like a meta business issue. Although I guess you could start a business that would attack those things, that would attack those inequities, not inequities. What I look at is, is accounting that is, uh, it's poor accounting. And it's very easy to, you know, when, when you get disposable stuff, I mean, I was just at an event at NYU, there was like a dinner and I, I brought my own fork and I brought my own plate because I knew that they were, they were going to serve food. And like everyone else had piles and piles of garbage. Anyway, so I'm thinking, of course, the caterers are going to want to use disposable because it lowers their costs there, but that doesn't lower the cost of cleaning everything up. But someone has to pay for the cost of cleaning that up. And so the accounting doesn't, you know, we've externalized that cost. And so no one has to deal with it. I don't know if that's worth getting into now because I- It's a whole different conversation, but it's happening. There's more and more effort being done for total cost accounting. And there is more and more groups that I understand that in the long run, this is not- sustainable. So there's, uh, I even have a book on my shelf uh, that's called The End of Accounting 
that is specifically trying to come to the tools that will help us understand how do we differently. I'm trying to find where I put it. But there is an alternative growing and there's a number of tools. And that's what I what I started with. We have to be disciplined about it. So if we say that this accounting is not full cost accounting, we need to be disciplined to develop and validate in a fully systematic scientific way new tools. So part of me wants to say who's we because it's not the businesses that are going to but I'm going to leave that for a future conversation. Absolutely. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable, join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. I want to get to, before we hit record, you were talking about how you've listened to a bunch of these podcasts and you've been thinking about what you're going to do, but I don't want to yet hear what you want to do because you, I think you have something. Yes, I do. The environment is something important to you. Yes. And what is the importance? What does it mean to you? Oh, it's my home, right? So it's very, very pragmatic. It's the air I breathe. It's the water I drink. It's the... The cat, I have a cat who is a, um, a stray. We saved him. He was hit by a car and he was by then already a teenager cat. So he's a stray. He grew up on the streets and he goes out and he hunts. And I'm thinking about what in the world will he consume? Will it be plastic? Will it be, will he get poisoned by something that is left by some humans outside? The environment is my home. It's more my home than any house, physical house I ever lived in. So it's very simple. There is no, at the molecular level, there's no place where air starts and my hand finishes. You know that better than I do. Um, I'm not as good in physics, but there is no physical place where one thing ends and another begins. So if I want my body to be healthy, I want my environment to be healthy and the other way around. And I want my daughter to actually live. And that's a question mark at this point. She's only 15. Yeah, She's projected to live another 85, 90 years. It's a question mark how she will breathe and live and create and love and have children or not, because the environment is such a bad place right now. You said a lot. I mean, the first thing you said was it's your home. And because everything is, there's no end, everything's interconnected and it's your health. And there's a bit of foreboding, I hear, about the future, I mean, for your cat, for your daughter. And so it's a mix. It's a rich, as I hear, a rich, complex mix of, of something deeply home. I mean, home says a lot. I, I don't think I'm extrapolating too much there. It means a lot to everyone, I think. And then you also said before that, uh, before we hit record, that you already do a lot of things in terms of your eating habits and your drinking habits. And I presume that emerged from, did those things emerge from what, from environmental reasons? Well, it was a combination of things. So um, once I started getting a lot of projects that are connected to sustainability, you have to look at data, right? So if you're helping an agriculture company, you have to look at data around agriculture and actually go and see what industrial-based farming looks like. Uh, If you're helping a mining company, you need to go and see what does it mean to mine because most mining, if you think about 
you know, coal mining, you probably think of deep type of shafts, but most mining in the world right now is explosive based mining. That means your company actually blows up earth every single day by schedule on a specific hour. And I had to fly in into this open spaces and see things being blown up with explosives to understand what it means for me to have this phone. Mm-hmm. A lot of, for example, the battery in a phone that I have in my hands right now requires cobalt to be the small size that it is. If there is no cobalt, there is no small size. But cobalt is one of those minerals, metals, that is produced a lot with illegal child labor. And there's a beautiful term describes that called artesian mining. Mm. So when you think artesian mining, you probably think like artesian bread, something beautiful. Artesian mining is a, a, a legal mine dug in a hill. And usually because it's done by a small group of people who have no resources, it's usually like a tiny, tiny tunnel that only children can crawl through because Mm. it collapses if you make it bigger. So it's a illegal child labor. Many of them die in those mines, which are just rabbit holes. Mm -hmm. And when you fly, for example, when I flew over Congo, because there's no roads to those sites, you have to fly on helicopter. And when I flew over and I saw this huge amount of holes in certain hills and understood how many people die in those holes. It makes you wonder, do I need another iPhone right now? Because where does that cobalt comes from? We don't really yet have a transparent system. There is an effort now. There's a big effort around battery transparency that started about a year ago. I'm happy that it's happening, but it's very, very slow. So I went vegetarian when my daughter stopped nursing, which was 14 years ago. And before that, I stopped drinking alcohol for many different reasons, uh, including the fact that I come from a long family of alcoholics, but also it's not the most um, sustainable type of manufacturing and shipping it all over the world. It's one of those products that we really ship around. You know, every time we celebrate scotch, it comes from Scotland. There's no other way to have scotch. Uh You have to ship it and it's very unsustainable to ship food that can be produced nearby. We went to a lot of local production. So we do a lot of uh, either community supported agriculture or eat at local places. And we cook a lot because it helps our family. I don't have a car. I don't see a need. Uh, we have one we have one car family, but we're actively considering, do we want to give up? We live in a very rural community. So I was, I think I told you last time we talked that um, in Columbus, where I live in Ohio, Uh, There is no way to get to my house by foot or by public transport. You have to own a car to get to my home because it's very suburban environment and it's not designed for uh, walking or there's no public transport to most suburbs. It's nowhere close. It's actually miles and miles and miles to the closest bus stop. So... Uh, we are discussing, should we figure out a different way? There's a growth of car sharing here. So can we switch off the car? So when you asked about the challenge, I was like, oh, so what else do we need to give up? And that's a little. Oh, uh, you're getting, you're getting ahead of us though. Cause yeah. So that's a limiting thought in my head. So, well, I was really asking about the, at this stage, I was asking if the activity that you did, what the origin was of the activity that you did. Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, it sounds like the minds had a lot to do with, the, seeing that seems to have affected you. I'm not sure what that connects with. And then the alcohol, it seems like, am I right in saying that all the shipping, say, of the bottles around the world is messing up your home? Yes. 
it is messing up my home. It's also messing me up, right? Even if you're not conscious of your impact in the world, your unconsciousness still can feel it. So I need to face up to what I choose and I need to understand the impacts. So next time I'm upset about something being dirty or we have a park nearby, a lovely park that is a community park. We pay taxes for it. But by the end of each spring, it gets completely trashed. It's a, it's a used to be, it's by the way, a reinvented recycled park. It used to be a railroad and um, there's no rail anymore. So this railroad was transferred into walking and biking and skating place. It sounds like it's not even sustainable. Like as low a bar as sustainability is. It's trashed. Uh, and every time it's trashed by the end of the season. So when snow goes away, you suddenly see how much trash is around. So yeah, you have to face it first to kind of become aware of it. So on a personal level, it sounds like. Yeah. Okay. So all the shipping around, all the cobalt that one, it's messing up your home Two, in my language, it tears me up inside to realize that I'm contributing to it, that I'm paying for it. And it feels like you don't want to keep paying for it. You want to take responsibility. I want to, yeah, I want to have an alternative, right? I want to generate an alternative and to create conditions in which it's actually, there's an alternative for those kids. So you like the designer, the designer yeah. you talked about. And so you're actually helping them to like, you bring them to, you have a big smile on your face. We're talking about drinking less alcohol and having fewer cell phones and things. And you're smiling because that you're like, yeah, that's, I like because that. That's exciting part, right? So it would be much easier. And that's why I had such, such a beef with the anti-sweatshop movement because I come from a third world country. I am, our listeners cannot see me, but I'm a very non-white person. So I'm, I'm Asian woman from a third world country. And if you think about a sweatshop in a Western understanding, that's a miles improvement from where most people worked in my country in 91. So a sweatshop was actually a huge upgrade. And when it was closed off, where did those young women go? Prostitution and many other things. So um, when we're talking about artesian mining, it's not to close and shut them down. It's to create a viable alternative in which parents don't want their kids to be slaves in artesian mine for cobalt. They just don't have an alternative. So if we have an alternative for a viable income, then those children will be at school. We cannot just shut it down. We need to invent and reinvent uh, we need to design a new solution. And in that sense, it's a very exciting place because we can create value in a new and better way. We can connect to the past, present, and future, not just kill all of the past. We can actually create continuity. So, Well, now you're, you've given me the language for the next step, which is all this re to reinvent the creative part. This is the fun part. This is where we live by our values. So you have these values and you've lived by many of them. And so the challenge now is I invite you at your option and you can say no if you don't want, but I, the smile on your face tells me that you're not going to say no uh, to, to act on these values, the home, the minds, the reinvention, the fun. This is the fun part. Now, the thing is, it has to be, it doesn't have to be, it's not how big it is. It's not, you don't have to fix everything. It, it can be very small. It's about developing skills and getting experiences, but something new that you're not already doing, something that uh, has a measurable, physically measurable this physically measurable and can't be telling other people what to do. And you've apparently you've thought about this already and I'm not sure if you got to anything. Have you gotten to anything? And what have you been yes. thinking about? You've been thinking about it with your, with your daughter. 
Yeah, so we had to think about the family because I cannot do things that I will create a fight inside the family. This is a family unit. So we actually took inspiration from some of your previous guests and from yourself. And as I said, I am a vegetarian. There are many things already. I, I'm not very much a... Physically, I don't like jewelry. I don't buy new stuff. I'm comfortable with having something and using it for a long time. So many of the things that people had an inspiration were already doing. This year, I took a challenge about a half a year ago that I plan to fly half less than last year mm-hmm. uh, because I am. I run a reinvention agency. I run a big consulting business and I fly huge amount of time. So it was a big commitment this year that... Uh, I will fly half time less. And I am on a plane usually every every week. That's my worst sin on planet Earth, I think. So this was already a commitment and I don't want to do, you know, recycle my commitment. We need a new commitment. Mm-hmm. So uh, the challenge that we thought uh, was easiest in the sense of this is doable, but hardest in the sense of actually getting it done is uh, the challenge that you shared of picking up one trash thing every day. And why is it hardest for me is because when I'm flying, when I'm on location, it's a very controlled thing. So a driver picks me up and I go to the office and I work 20 hours, sometimes 28 hours this year was a lot of over 24 hour working days. And then I come and sleep in the hotel. So I don't even walk outside. And when I'm at home, there are days, weeks where I have two, three days when I never even left the home. So when I was discussing it with my husband, he said, there's enough trash just in our neighborhood. Just walk out and pick mm-hmm. a piece of trash. It's not an impossible task. So we want to do a two-part thing. I want to do one piece of trash a day. And I also want to follow the beautiful inspiration that is on social media now of the trash tag trash hashtag where people actually take a picture of something trashed Mm -hmm. before and after. And I want to clean the park I just talked about Mm -hmm. because it's looking really desperate right now. It's really, really bad. So I think we can clean it up quite quickly. That would be my hope. But one piece of trash a day seems a bit, I hope I will, I need to take pictures. So I need 365 pictures to promise myself that I will actually do it and take a picture every day. And if it's less than 365, we need to come up with some sort of serious punishment (laughs) to make it like a shame, shaming session to make sure it's at least 365. So you want to do it for one year and and then see what happens after that. And uh, yeah, I, I have to say, that's what got this podcast started was my student who just decided on his own to do or he was listening to me and I didn't suggest it. He just said, oh, I'll do 10 pieces of day, trash per day for a month. And hearing his response was like, oh, wow, that really changed a lot. And, and then John Lee Dumas picking up trash from his beach every month, that got me to start plogging. And then, which is, you know, picking up trash when I jog. It's, yeah, it's really something. It's, it's funny how, oh man, when I was taking the train from LA to Houston, there were times when the train would be like two hours, there's like a whistle stop. And two hours before the stop, no phone reception, no internet. And two hours after the whistle stop, and even at the whistle stop, no phone, no internet, right? So it's like two hours in desert everywhere. And at the whistle stop, you go out to stretch your legs and there's trash to pick up. And I've interviewed a whole bunch of uh, these um, sailors who win around the world races. You know, they're off in the Southern Ocean and and there's trash everywhere. And I was talking to my friend in Bali. I was like, yes, yeah, there's trash there. And it, it wasn't just that he said yes. It was the way he said yes was like, of course. Like, that's the way it is. Yeah, of course. Of course there's trash. I was reading 93% of Americans have plastic in our bloodstreams. That's where we are. Anyway, so 
I think you're going to like this. I think I will learn a lot also. I want to see what's out there in terms of trash. Yeah. I want to actually do an exploration of what do we throw out. And again, our conversation today was about value. From the point of view of business, that's a whole bunch of money. Uh, trash is not generated for free. To produce a piece of trash, you need to create a lot of value and you need to destroy a lot of value. And that's a whole bunch of raw materials, labor, effort, dream that is now thrown up, thrown away in a, in the forest somewhere. So I want to understand uh, what is that that we disvalue so so much that it's not even considered worth. Um, an effort. And I remember I listened to the episode of Tom Zaki where he spoke about the relationship of um, supply-demand curve mm -hmm. for trash. Yeah. This is one of the few things that actually pays to <laughs> collect and we still don't value it. So what is it that we disvalue so much that it's, uh, it's considered to be easier to just throw away? Because to produce a piece of plastic bottle, the amount of effort intellect, sweat, tears, and everything else that went into production of that plastic bottle. For it to be laying in the forest, um, polluting that forest, poisoning it, and being completely useless for millions of years. What's up? Why are we disvaluing so much? So I want to understand also, what are we disvaluing? Yeah, you're going to like this exercise. Every now and then you're going to be uh, at home and you're like, oh, I got to go pick up a piece of trash today because I don't want to, I'm like, I don't want to miss a day. And then it's, that's when you think, you know, and it's, it's not what you, a lot of people think of giving up, right? Not picking up a piece of trash per day gives you more freedom than picking up a piece of trash per day, but the constraint breeds, breeds creativity and it's what you replace it with. And you're going to find out how long do you think if, if the whole thing is 365, how long do you think it'll be before? I mean, I can talk to you in a year. Mm -hmm. I suspect that along the way, you'll be able to speak about it uh, from experience and knowledge. Uh, how long, if you're up for sharing your experience? I'm happy to. Um, well, I think at least a few months, including the months that are traditionally very heavy for me. So like June, for example, is extremely, extremely difficult time. We travel a lot. We do a lot of projects. And then July, we have a vacation. And both of those options is an excuse not to do it because you're sitting somewhere on a, uh, on a pretty controlled environment or you're flying. So I need to think, okay, can I pick up a piece of trash in the airport if I'm in a closed, in a closed environment? So I think a couple of months, uh, two, three months should be enough to see if I actually, if I have 90 pictures to show. Okay. So uh, after we hang up, then we'll, or after we stop recording, we'll schedule that. You reminded me this morning, I, um, I compost and the compost, I put it in the freezer because it's, I have to walk a ways to drop it off in the place where it gets picked up. My building doesn't have it yet. Although I've started a sustainability committee in my building, partly because I know that the issue is not, can we do it? It's like, you have to deal with the co-op board and they all think mm -hmm. that it's going to breed rats and it's not going to, but they don't know that. <laughs> and so I'm sitting there about to walk up to the compost bin and a guy who I've never met, you know, he's just walking along and he, he I guess he finishes banana and throws a peel in a trash can. So I like walk over to the trash can. <laughs> get the banana peel and put it in the compost. And it's kind of fun. You know, there's a, um, one thing I've noticed in New York, if you, when you go, when you drop off stuff in the compost bins, everyone else generally has been keeping their food scraps in their freezer also, and now has walked a mile or so to go there. And so the conversations I have with people over the compost bins are always fun because it's like, you oh. see what you've been eating, you know? And I always look at theirs. I'm like, You're, that's stuff you could have eaten, but whatever. 
And <laughs> mine's now it's like all this like scraps from the root vegetables and the onions. And anyway, I think also, I don't know how this is going to sound, but I think for me, the emotion of disgust has risen up and not because it's not that I like it, but if the garbage is going to be there, I'd rather feel disgust than not see the garbage. I, I, of course, I'd rather not see the garbage on the streets. And it's a very curious thing. We're talking about emotions and values and to put yourself in the mindset of, of someone who is comfortable with dropping trash on the ground. I look forward to hearing your experiences. I look forward to experiencing them. Yeah. And, and so is the park going to be a separate thing or not? Is that just something you're thinking about? Um, I would like to make sure we do it before the vacation starts. So as soon as my daughter gets out of school, I want to organize also, not just ourselves. I think we can do something special for them. We do a lot of protests. We're a big marching family. And, you know, the last couple of years in the U.S., you have a lot to march Mm -hmm. against. (laughs) So we march and we organize and do other things, Uh, especially Ohio is a very rural, very impoverished place. So you can can do a lot of civil engagement here. So I'm thinking we should do uh, something, not just our, the three of us, but actually bring other kids and make them a little bit more excited about it, mm-hmm. right? So make it into a social media event, do it a lot of cool, make it into joyful and cool thing, not something that they're punished with. So that's our plan. And she finishes in May 24th, I think. So that weekend would be a perfect time before everyone flies away. I want, you know, I want to get involved with some protest. And make it so that everyone who goes there, that when the protest is over, there's n- there's no need for anyone to clean anything up off the ground. Nothing. Not one piece of garbage. And that all the signs and so forth, that they make them all somehow not polluting. Mm-hmm. And because I've seen the messes after after parades here and even earth parades. I'm like, what? How? <laughs> you're just fueling people to say you're hypocritical. I don't know if you're hypocritical or not, but I'm just, I know what, you know, people vote based on what they see. And, you know, anyway. Uh, so do you want to lump that in with the conversation in three months? Do you want to be accountable Absolutely. for that? Okay. Absolutely. We must do it now. So I'd like to make it specific. Do you have something specific there or is it to be determined? Um, in terms of the activity or in terms of time? The activity. Oh, I we haven't determined, but I think we should clean up the specific McNamara Park uh, here in Galena, Ohio. Okay. That will be. I was visiting a, a past guest on my podcast and she lives by the beach and we went for a walk along the beach and she, she just, as a matter of habit, I mean, not habit, like she and her and the other person who owns a home, they just go to the beach and pick up garbage every, every day. I mean, they walk the dog and they pick up garbage and it's just something that they do and they don't make a big show of it. They don't, but I think other people see and are starting to pick it up. But of course the beach, it's all coming from, it's not just coming from that community. And, uh, so let's put that on the, on the, we'll put that on the agenda for talking in a, in a few months. Well, it's definitely not my habit yet. I pick up occasionally. But I definitely, it's not a daily thing. So that's why it was so intriguing for me. If I can make it more intentional and actually have a goal around it, what happens? I look forward to hearing. Yeah, it's funny for me. Like I, I'm walking along and I'm like, ah, oh, that thing's right in my path. I've already picked up several, several pieces of trash today. Oh, all right, I'll pick it up. And sometimes I'm like, ah, I'm not going to pick that up. I don't know. It's, yeah, I'll, I'll be interested to hear. I want to wrap up because not that I couldn't keep going. What's anything you want to leave the listeners with? Any direct message for them? Well, I I feel a lot of question marks right now, not only in this country, in the world in general. I remember in 2008, I got an email from a person who was doing her doctorate and she read some of my books and 
she said, you know, do you want to meet up? And we met up for a coffee at a conference and we sit down. And the first thing she asks, do you have hope? Because when you look at data every day, the data is not on our side. The hope is a big question. And when I think about the recent uh, school protest for climate change, uh, for for action against climate change, um, a lot of question marks was that I don't want you to be hopeful. I want you to start acting as if your house is on fire because it is on fire. So one thing that I want to leave the listeners with is hope starts with action. So when you start doing things, so have one new reinvention in your life, you will have tons of hope because suddenly you have a better product or a better process or a better meeting or a better dinner. And suddenly you have hope because you have evidence. So that would be my my one last thing is don't wait for hope to emerge as an actual intellectual exercise. Do one thing and suddenly you will feel much more hopeful, much more hopeful. Well, not a Jackson Bayeva, saying it the best I could. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you for hosting me. I'm glad that she catches the point of meaning and value, the core of what I consider leadership, and how we can create it for each other in the style of Viktor Frankl. The people who get business most get this view, others dismiss it. She also talks about how we treat sustainability as a chore. I think that's incredibly important to view. I don't view it as a chore. I think it is something joyful. Even then, I agree with her that it's not enough, nor is it accurate in my experience, to just merely to target sustainability. She talks about how we need to create more meaning in everything, That's why I call this the Leadership in the Environment podcast, Leadership First, where leadership means meaning, value, purpose, passion, and joy. It's missing. I don't hear it in the mainstream message on sustainability, on the environment, which is drowning in coercion, compliance, doom, and gloom, and things like that. As for her personal challenge, I hear her personally engaged. It sounds to me meaningful to her, not abstract. So I look forward to hearing results, and I hope to bring you a leader acting on in her life, which she consults others to do. inspired to, then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse, and living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.